The Creep Show Chronicles contains graphic and disturbing content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Sam. I'm Preston. I'm Roy. I'm Pat. And I'm Ashley. Welcome to episode 100 of the Creep Show Chronicles. I can't believe we actually made it to episode 100. We actually committed to something for 100 episodes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, uh, how's everybody doing today? Just peach key, my dear. Feeling creepy. Peach. Good, good, good. Got yeah. Everybody good? We're good. Everybody good? Okay. Oh, yeah. So, what are y'all smoking today? Face mints. Yes. So, face mints, it's like a, it's a cross between face off OG and Kush mint. And it's an indica with a sedative effect, so it's helpful for like sleeping. And it's a nice, orange and cinnamon flavor and it's not for the faint of heart though they say this strain is usually best kept for the end of the day due to its strong psychoactive effects and heavy couch lock effect so that's probably why we were giggling for 10 minutes before we started i think so so sam what are we talking about today wow this story has everything Everything. magic spiritualism frauds Ghost hunting, a hot Hungarian man in shackles. <laughs> I, I'm so. I mean, called spiritualism. Spiritualism. Oh, yeah. So, do we know? Do we know what spiritualism is? I mean, I kind of not enough to say I do. The, the 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 act of being spiritual in a structured form. <laughs> I only know what the crazy hippie told me. <laughs> I don't know if he's trustworthy. Well, these are the crazy hippies of the 1800s and early 1900s. So, Definitely trustworthy. <laughs> spiritualism and religion is a movement based on the belief that departed souls can interact with the living. Spiritualists sought to make contact with the dead, usually through the assistance of a medium, a person believed to have the ability to contact spirits directly. Some mediums worked while in trance-like states, and some claimed to be the catalyst for various paranormal physical phenomena, including the materializing or moving of objects. Um, through which the spirits announced their presence. So our own, you know, favorite president, uh, Abraham Lincoln, his wife was very, very prevalent in spiritualism, and she actually practiced spiritualism up until her death. And uh, Abraham also believed in it as well. So, we are all from Springfield, Illinois. We know way too more about Lincoln than we ever wanted to. Right? Mm-hmm. So throughout her life, she suffered an immense uh, amount of loss, including her mother at a young age, Three out of four of her children and the brutal assassination of her husband uh, before her very eyes, obviously. She first turned to spiritualism as a tool for processing her grief after the death of her youngest son, Willie, in February 1862. She continued believing and practicing spiritualism until her death. And if you want to hear more about Abraham Lincoln, then go and listen to episode, I don't know, 84 of the Creepshow Chronicles, where we talk about haunted Springfield, Illinois. Various forms of communicating with the spirits of the recently deceased have been observed in communities around the world, but the purpose of such communication and the understanding of the nature of spirit existence varies considerably. Modern spiritualism traces its beginnings to a series of apparently uh, supernatural events at a farmhouse in Hydesville, New York in 1848. And this is the story of the Fox sisters. This is where this all starts. Mm, what a name. <clears throat> I did, if uh, if you noticed, actually, when I named this episode, the Harry Fox Spooky Time Magic Jamboree. The Harry Fox Spooky Time Magic Jamboree. Mm-hmm. I'll say that five times fast. Oh, God. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so, so tell us more about these foxes. I'm going to. So if you listened to last week's episode, Ashley's episode, you may have heard oh. us talk about Ouija boards, and you may remember the Fox Sisters. And I'm going to give you a little history on who they are. One of the greatest religious movements of the 19th century began in the bedroom of two young girls living in a farmhouse in Hydesville, New York. On a late March day in 1848, Margareta, Maggie, Fox, 14, and Kate, her 11-year-old sister, waylaid a neighbor eager to share an odd and frightening phenomenon. 
Every night around bedtime, they said they heard a series of raps on the walls and furniture. Raps that would seem to manifest with a peculiar otherworldly intelligence. The neighbor, skeptical, came to see for herself, joining the girls in the small chamber they, they shared with their parents. I'm sorry, um, these girls are luring a man into a small chamber? It's not what it sounds like. So Maggie and Kate huddled together on their bed. Their mother, Margaret, began the uh, demonstration. Demonstration? <laughs> yes. Quote, now count five, she ordered, and the room shook with the sound of five heavy thuds. Count 15, she commanded, and the mysterious presence obeyed. Next, she asked it to tell the neighbor's age. 33 distinct raps followed. If you are an injured spirit, she continued, manifest it by three raps, and it did. Margaret Fox did not seem to consider the date, March 31st, April Fool's Eve, and the possibility that her daughters were frightened by, uh, not by an unseen presence, but the unexpected success of their prank. Speaking but how American, would they know the man's age? Like, how does the spirit know the man's age? Because they're spooky. <laughs> and they know things. <laughs> because spooky. Because spooky, and they know things. Yeah. Yeah. So, the Fox family deserted the house and sent Maggie and Kay to live with their older sister, Leah Fox Fish, in Rochester. Story might have died there were it not for the fact that Rochester was a hotbed for reform and religious activity. I mean, it was the 1800s, so. Mm. Uh, the same vicinity, Finger Lakes region of New York State, which gave birth to Mormonism and Millerism, the precursor to the Seventh-day Adventism. Community leaders Isaac and Amy Post were intrigued by the Fox sister's story and by the subsequent rumor that the spirit likely belonged to a peddler who had been murdered in the farmhouse five years before. A group of Rochester residents examined the cellar of the Fox's home, uncovering strands of hair and what appeared to be bone fragments. Oh, what the fuck? What? Mm -hmm. Okay, you've got me now. <laughs> There's a mystery afoot. Better this be time, bones. on today's episode of Unsolved Mysteries, <laughs> I'm Robert Stack. <laughs> <laughs> the Post invited the girls to a gathering at their home, anxious to see if they could communicate with spirits in another locale. I suppose, quote, I suppose I went with as much unbelief as Thomas felt when he was introduced to Jesus after he ascended. Isaac Post wrote, Dead. Jesus. <laughs> 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 but he was swayed by very distinct thumps under the floor and several apparent answers. He was further convinced when Leah Fox also proved to be a medium, how convenient, communicating with the Post's recently deceased daughter. The Post rented the largest hall in Rochester and 400 people came to hear the mysterious noises. <laughs> we'll Sir. bring the town! Bring the town in! Oh, noises! There's noises happening, guys! <laughs> Put on your Sunday best, kids. We're going to hear noises. <laughs> that just reminds me of, if the men learn we can shapeshift, they're going to tell the church. Oh, <laughs> oh God, that's how Zach Baggins started. Me oh, and my, my sister <laughs> Afterward, Amy Post accompanied the sisters to a private chamber where they disrobed and were examined by a committee of skeptics who found no evidence of a hoax. So these they literally had them stripped naked and checked all their crevices for some place, something hidden in all their crevices. To make sure that they weren't trying to like... Booty clap to make the noise. Oh my... <laughs> Remember, this is the 1800s, so it's not like they're like looking for a device. Okay? <laughs> they did have dildos, but not the buzz buzz. But I'm just saying, like, they don't have anything to like, speakers or things to make right. noises. Right. So they're... they're oh. Okay, so the idea that one could communicate with spirits was hardly new. The Bible contains hundreds of references uh, uh, to angels administering to man, but the movement known as modern spiritualism sprang from several distinct revolutionary prophecies and characters. And by prophecy, I mean philosophies. Yeah, the non-phonics did not work for me. <laughs> so the ideas and practices of Franz Anton Mesmer, an 18th century Australian healer, had spread to the United States and by the 1840s held the country in thrall. Mesmer proposed that everything in the universe, including the human body, was governed by a magnetic fluid huh? that could become imbalanced, causing illness. What in the Scientology? By, right. So by waving his hands over a patient's body, he induced a mesmerized hypnotic state that allowed him to manipulate the magnetic force and restore health. So he just hypnotized him. Thank you. Him. Cult shit. That, that, that does sound like a cult. Shit. <laughs> Desperate people will believe anything. 
Could you imagine if these people back then had like social media? I feel like their social media was like the church. Like that was their social the church. Media. Amateur mesmerists became a popular attraction at parties and parlors. Uh, a few proving skillful enough to attract paying customers. Some who awakened from a mesmeric trance claimed to have experienced visions of spirits from another dimension. So, at the same time, the ideas of Emanuel Swedenborg, an 18th century Swedish philosopher and mystic, also surged in popularity. Swedenborg, or Swedenborg, whatever, described an afterlife consisting of three heavens, three hells, and an interim destination. The world of spirits, where everyone went immediately upon dying, and which was more or less similar to what they were accustomed to on Earth, self-love drove one toward the varying degrees of hell, love for others elevated one to heaven. Upon hearing of the Rochester incident, Andrew Jackson Davis invited the Fox sisters to come to his home in New York City to witness their medium capabilities for himself. Joining his cause with the sisters, ghostly manifestations elevated his stature from obscure prophet to re uh, recognized leader of a mass movement, one that appealed to increasing numbers of Americans inclined to reject the gloomy Calvinistic doctrine of predestination and embrace the reform-minded optimism of the mid-19th mid century. Unlike their Christian contemporaries, Americans who adopted spiritualism believed that they had a hand in their own salvation, and direct communication with those who had passed over offered insight into the ultimate fate of their own soul. So back to the Fox sisters. Maggie, Kate, and Leah embarked on a professional tour to spread word of the spirits, booking a suite fittingly at Barnum's Hotel in the quarter of Broadway and Maiden Lane. An establishment owned by a cousin of the famed showman, an editorial in the Scientific American scoffed at their arrival, calling the girls the spiritual knockers from Rochester. Is this how freak shows started? I mean... Or the vaudeville circuit, maybe? 1840s? 1840s yeah. So this could have been the very early starts of, like, touring vaudeville and stuff, because mm -hmm. that got really popular in, like, the, like, mainstream in, like, the very, yeah. like, late 1800s, early 1900s. So it very well could be. So they conducted their sessions in the hotel's parlor, inviting as many as 30 attendees to gather around a large table at the hours of 10 a.m., 5 p.m., and 8 p.m., taking an occasional private meeting in between. Admission was $1, and visitors included preeminent members. A dollar? A dollar. In that time of day? A dollar? In that economy? <laughs> Take your freaking water jug of freaking Here pennies. You go. Time Just... travel to the 1840s. <laughs> there you go. And you will be treated like royalty. Visitors included preeminent members of New York society, Horace Greeley, the iconoclastic and influential editor of the New York Tribune, James Finmore, uh, yeah, Finmore Cooper, editor and poet, William Cullen Bryant and abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, who witnessed a session in which the spirits rapped in time to a popular song. Are they rapping now? <laughs> I know. I was thinking that too when I was doing the Boys in the hood over here. <laughs> <laughs> so they rapped in time to a popular song and spelled out a message. Spiritualism will work miracles in the cause of reform. Leah stayed in New York entertaining callers from a, in a seance room while Kate and Maggie took the show to other cities. Among them, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Columbus, St. Louis, Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia. So, this guy, Alicia Kent Kane, succumbed to Maggie's charms, and um, even though she was, even though he deemed her to be a fraud, he still fell in love with her, um, but he couldn't prove how, how the sounds were made. So, after a whole month, he, he couldn't prove how the sounds were made. He did think that she was a fraud. But after a whole month's trial, I could make nothing of them, he confessed. Therefore, they are a great mystery. He courted Maggie, 13 years his junior, and encouraged her to give up her life of dreary sameness and suspected deceit. She acquiesced, retiring to attend school at Kane's behest, and expense... Oh, wow. And expense and married him shortly before his untimely death in 1857. My girl. Get a man with one foot in the grave. I am on her side. I <laughs> okay. So, to honor his memory, she converted to Catholicism as Cain, a Presbyterian. He seemed to think that the faith ornate iconi uh, iconography, whatever, um, and sense of mystery would appeal to her. In mourning, she began drinking heavily and vowed to keep her promise to Cain as holy and forever abandoned spiritualism. Okay, so October 21st, 1888, the New York 
uh, World published an interview with Maggie in anticipation of her appearance that evening at New York Academy of Music. She publicly denounced spiritualism, and she was paid $1,500 for the exclusive. Her main motivation was rage at her sister Leah and other leading spiritualists who had publicly chastised Kate for her drinking and accused her of being unable to care for her two young children. So Kate planned to be in the audience when Maggie gave her speech, leading, lend, lending her tacit support. So my sister Katie and myself were very young children when this horrible deception began, Maggie said. At night when we went to bed, we used to tie an apple on a string and move the string up and down, causing the apple to bump on the floor. Or we would drop the apple on the floor, making a strange noise every time that it would rebound. The sisters graduated from apple dropping to manipulating, this is blew my fucking mind, manipulating their joints, their knuckles, to make the rapping sound. So they would put their Jesus foot on the floor Christ. and do something with their fucking foot to like make it like pop what? on the floor. And it was like, many great people, when they hear the rapping, they imagine at once the spirits are touching them. She explained, it is a very common delusion. Some very wealthy people came to see me some years ago when I lived in 42nd Street and I did some rappings for them. I made the spirit rap on the chair and one of the ladies cried out, I feel the spirit tapping me on the shoulder. So she offered a demonstration, uh, removing her shoe and placing her right foot upon a wooden stool. The room fell silent and still, and she was rewarded with a number of short little raps. So there stood a black-robed, sharp-faced widow, the New York Herald reports, working her big toe and solemnly declaring that it was in this way she created the excitement that has driven so many people to suicide or insanity. One moment, one moment, one moment I knew, nope, one moment it was ludicrous, the next it was weird. Maggie insisted that her sister Leah knew what the wrappings were and knew that they were fake all along, but exploited her younger sisters for greed. So, I mean, imagine that. Before exiting the stage, she thanked God that she was able to expose spiritualism. Go fuck yourself. So in 1904, school children playing in the sisters' childhood home in Hydesville, known locally as the Spook House, discovered the majority of a skeleton between the earth and crumbling cedar walls. A doctor was consulted who ultimately, or no, who estimated that the bones were about 50 years old, giving credence to the sisters' tale of spiritual messages from a murdered peddler, but not everyone was convinced. The New York Times reported that the bones had created a stir amusingly dispro disproportionate wow, to any necessary significance of the discovery and suggested that the sisters had merely been clever enough to exploit a local mystery. Even if the bones were that of the murdered peddler, the Times concluded, there will still remain that dreadful confession about the clicking joints, which reduces the case to uh, a farce. Five years later, another doctor examined the skeleton and determined that it was made up of only a few ribs with odds and ends of bones, and among them a superabundance of some and a deficiency of others. Among them also were some chicken bones. He also reported a rumor that a man living near the spook house had planted the bones as a practical joke, but was much too ashamed to come clean. Okay, so some were chicken bones. Okay. Okay, so we're gonna, that's the, that's the Fox sisters. Okay, woohoo, yay. Throughout their entire lives, these, they made a living saying that they could talk to spirits. By clicking their joints. And the entire time they were clicking their joints. Yes. Yeah. He was paid fifteen hundred dollars to expose it. Right? Ooh, the spirits! Because one of them found Jesus. <laughs> Basically. So one Basically. of them found another spirit. Okay. She went from ghost to zombies. So <laughs> cracking her ankle. Fox, Fox sisters officially hoax. Oh yeah, they're a hoax. Now we move on to the whole reason that Pat's here. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I've never okay. taken magicians seriously. I mean, some of their tricks are cool, and some of them I can't explain. But I do have trust issues, and so did this magician, who was determined to discredit as many mediums as he could. Man after my own heart, this guy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so when we could, when we think of Harry Houdini, what inevitably comes to mind is the image of an athletic man in underclothes, loaded with chains, and escaping from the most unlikely of prisons. A water tank, a safe, or a milk jug sealed with padlock. Perhaps the greatest exploit of escapism of the most famous magician of all time was to rid many others of the deceptions of mediums and spiritualists. There was not one Houdini, but two. Until 1922, he was the showman 
and even the silent movie star. But in his last years, he was the hunter of fake ghosts. It was the death of his mother that led Houdini towards spiritualism. So throughout his career, Harry Houdini continuously offended public perceptions of magic and reality with daring escapes, feats, and mentalism, and toward the end of his life, debunking the claims of spiritualists. As committed as he was to furthering magic, he was equally devoted to the pursuit of truth and spent as much uh, of his last years, as much time of his last years, exposing the fraudulent mediums, uh, spirit photographers, and others who claimed to communicate with the dead. So although the seances themselves were revealed to be fraudulent, the movement of the Fox sisters continued for almost a century, acquiring famous advocates and believers such as Harriet Beecher Stowe, William Lloyd Garrison, and later Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. They fell for the wrappings. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so it would make perfect sense on the surface that Conan Doyle, the author of Sherlock Holmes, and Houdini, the great skeptic, would be friends. A casual observer might think that both of them were committed to understanding and explaining how the impossible was indeed possible. Houdini authored a number of books and magic secrets, or sorry, a number of books about magic secrets, and Sherlock Holmes remained one of the finest detectives in literary history. However, Conan Doyle had suffered the loss of his wife in 1910 after a long illness and the death of his son in World War I. These tragedies led him to seek contact with their spirits and turn to spiritualism. Jeannie and his wife, Bess, had worked as mediums in the early stages of careers and were fully aware of the tricks involved in fooling people into thinking that they were making contact with their beloved Departed. Now, I have a lot of respect for Houdini because, like, some people who were like Houdini who knew how to do it would, like, take advantage of that and, like, fool people, but yeah. he didn't. He was like, now, nah, bitch, you're fucking lying. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's yeah. because, and even, like, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, it, you want to believe. Mm -hmm. You want to believe that this is true and it's possible and it can happen, but... You get you get fooled every almost every single time. I'm not yeah. gonna say every time. Right, mm -hmm. right. Yeah, people want that fantasy for sure. Oh, they yeah. want to believe that they can talk to the dead, their their mm -hmm. lost loved ones. They truly do. They want to believe it's not over. And yep. there are people mm -hmm. who convince and others. Sir, and if Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, I mean the man who pretty much invented detective investigation. Mm -hmm. If he can be tricked, if he can fall uh, fall susceptible to, I want to believe and there's something more, then who can't? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really, for sure. So after the death of his mother in 1913, Houdini, or because of a stroke, Houdini was not the same again. He became a taciturn specter who spent long periods in the cemetery lying on the grave and talking to the earth. Allegedly, from then on, he began to attend seances to contact his mother which led him to discover the deceptions of mediums and to initiate his personal crusade against the fraud. Houdini was never a believer in spiritualism, summarizes the wider and popular scientist Massimo Polidoro, Polidoro, there you go, author of The Final Seance, uh, The Strange Friendship Between Houdini and Conan Doyle uh, from 2001. Conan Doyle's second wife, also a self-proclaimed medium, held a seance with the Houdinis and Conan Doyle, whereby she took a dictation of a 15-page letter, ostensibly, from Houdini's mother. I told you hooked on phonics didn't work for me. Um, the letter was clearly a fake because it was composed in English, a language his mother never spoke or wrote. While this more or less broke the friendship apart, Conan Doyle's faith in spiritualism never wavered, even as Houdini joined a challenge proposed by Scientific American to demonstrate proof, once and for all, of the power of mediums. Conan Doyle was the first to suggest a scientific test to prove the veracity of spiritualism, and in 1924, Scientific American Magazine put forth a $2,500 prize, proof of true mediumship. Mm. Um, Houdini matched the amount, allowing for a $5,000, which is $84,000 in today's money, mm. to, <laughs> to anyone who could pass the test of the panel of judges assigned to the case. Houdini being among them, one by one, all sorts of clairvoyant, spectral communicators, and other spiritualists were deemed fraudulent, including the woman who became America's most talked about medium, Marjorie. 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 So who was Marjorie, you ask? Marjorie was an upper-class woman married to a doctor in Massachusetts. She was considered more respectable 
due to her unwillingness to accept money for her work. Houdini, however, was a skeptic from the beginning. And although one of the Scientific American judges was convinced that she was real, it was Houdini's opinion that prevailed and was verified by Harvard only a few months later in February 1926. Damn. Mm. So he straight up was like, all right, all y'all motherfuckers that think that you, you're real, come, try me. Come on. Try. I real. put up $5,000 for one of y'all to actually be real. Come on. Mm-hmm. And nobody was. Wow. Nope. Of course. So, Houdini himself would only live a few months longer. After suffering a blow to the stomach in St. Louis in October 1926, Houdini died in Detroit of perontinitis uh, caused by a a burst appendix on Halloween of all days. Mm. He was 52 years old. While numerous mediums attempted to contact his spirit after his death, and Bess herself participated in a series of seances for 10 years following his passing, Nobody was able to reveal the private code that the two of them had worked out while he was still alive. Rosa Bell Believe was used in their earliest fake spiritualist shows, and they agreed to continue to use that code should Houdini be able to contact Best from the afterlife. Best passed away of a heart attack in 1943, still unable to contact her late husband, and by proving what he had stood up for his entire life, that spiritualism was fraudulent. By applying scientific tests to mediums and demonstrating both through print and stage shows, the tricks of mediums um, were fake. So Houdini became an early proponent of evidence-based debunking. He did not ask for audiences to take his word on faith. Instead, he provided proof of trickery and fakery, which fact-checkers strive for today. So one of the differences between real and fake news is the preponderance of high-quality information, backing statements and articles, videos, and other materials. Houdini demonstrated that proof is necessary, even from someone (coughs) who made his fame through illusion. Yes. So who do you think of when you... Okay, so that's the end of Houdini. Well, I will say one thing about Houdini. Mm-hmm. You call him a skeptic. Everybody calls him a skeptic. I like to think that skeptics are the truest believers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They just want any sort of proof. They, yeah, they any, want it yeah. to happen. They want. It Why to do you be think believable. he's offering five thousand uh-huh. dollars? It's not. It's not to debunk all these uh, all these wannabes. It's mm-hmm. to find that one that's real. Yeah. yeah. story of the so-called original ghost hunter. So if there was a single person to come out of the golden age of spiritualism and the investigations that surrounded the movement with the most influence on the field of paranormal investigation as we know it today, that person was Harry Price. Although disliked and distrusted by many, there was no denying that he was one of the most influential figures in the formative years of ghost research. He was a highly charismatic personality whose energy and enthusiasm for the paranormal made him the first celebrity ghost hunter. So he was the first Zach Baggins. He was the first And he Zach had Baggins. like like his in charisma charismatic energy. But he was not a fucking douchebag like <laughs> Price was instrumental in bringing ghost research to the general public, realizing that only by making the research entertaining could he attract the attention of the masses. Because of this, after his death in 1948, Jealous colleagues would attack not only Price's research, but also the man himself, staining his reputation for years to come. It was during the golden age of spiritualism that Price first emerged as an investigator of uh, psychical activity. During this era, researchers were working in a volatile climate that was charged with accusations of fraud against many of the mediums, as well as some of the investigators. Price began to make a name for himself in the waning days of the spiritualist movement and began to make many enemies as well. It makes, like, I love how, like, it said right here, realizing that only by making the research entertaining could he attract the attention of the masses. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that's even with what we have today. Mm -hmm. Like, they fake everything because that's what's going to be entertaining. People don't want to watch a ghost show if there are not going to be any ghosts. Mm -hmm. But Price was somewhat similar to Houdini in where he did, you know, out some of the, the people. Like, well, yeah, no, that's a good thing. Like, that yeah, means he's no, yeah. truly, like, what we were talking about earlier, they're, you know, what Pat said, they're truly trying to find mm-hmm. these things and wanting proof of this. But, of course, they got to debunk all the fake stuff so that way people don't believe this and think that this is just fact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's why we only watch Ghost Adventures now for entertainment. 
And whenever we want to actually learn something, we watch Kindred Spirits or Portals to Hell or Paranormal Lockdown, something like that. Mm. We don't watch <laughs> we don't watch Ghost Adventures for research anymore. We just do it. We just do it to laugh and have a good time. Although he claimed his birth within Shropshire, Harry Price was born on January 17, 1881 in London, England, the son of a grocer and traveling salesman. His, his interest in the paranormal began when he was eight and saw his first performance of a stage musician, magician. From that point on, he became, he became an amateur conjurer and began collecting what would become an immense library of books on magic. His first psychical investigation took place when he was only 15 and still in school. He and a young friend obtained permission to spend the night in an old manor house that was rumored to be haunted. Yes? Nothing. Oh. Uh, they experienced disembodied footsteps in the house and attempted to photograph the ghost, which failed when Price loaded far too much flash powder into his camera. The incident made, the incident made for an amusing anecdote that Price often retold later in life. However, it did guarantee his future interest in ghosts and strange phenomena. After graduating from school, Price worked at a number of jobs, including a journalist. Then, in 1908, he met and married a wealthy heiress named Constance Mary Knight. He then settled down to become what all of us wish we could be, an independently wealthy ghost hunter. So, Price joined the Society for Psychical Research in 1920, and because of his knowledge in conjuring, had debunked fraudulent mediums, but in direct contrast to other magicians, Price endorsed some mediums that he believed were genuine. Price's first major success in psychical research came in 1922 when he exposed the spirit photographer William Hope. In the same year, he traveled to Germany together with Eric Dingwall and investigated Will Schneider at the home of Baron Albert von Schrenk, Notzing, in Munich. Sorry if I said that wrong. I'm a dumbass American. In 1923, <laughs> in 1923, Price exposed the medium Jan Guzik, uh, or Guzik. According to Price, the man was uh, the man was clever, especially with his feet, which were almost as useful to him as his hands in producing phenomena. Wait, so here what? we go, another fucking foot wrapper. Wait, what? I'm is sorry. It? Did <laughs> spirit photographer William Hope, who was making a fortune taking portraits of people that always seemed to include the sitter's death relatives, death dead relatives, Price was sent to investigate and soon published his findings. He claimed that Hope used pre-exposed plates in his camera, which he learned by secretly switching the plates the, the photographer was using with plates of his own. Price wrote that the plates, nope, the photographs depicting the ectoplasm of the medium Eva Carrere, taken with Shrek Notzing, looked artificial and two-dimensional. From cardboard and newspaper portraits that were there, th there were no scientific controls as both of her hands were free. So there was like... It was superimposed onto the film, basically. Mm -hmm. So in 1920, Eva was investigated by psychical researchers in London. An analysis of her ectoplasm revealed it to be chewed paper. She was, <laughs> she was also investigated in 1922, and in the results of the test were negative. But in 1925, Price investigated Maria Stilbert and caught her using her feet and toes to move objects in the seance room. He also investigated the direct voice mediumship of George Valentine in London. In the seance, Valentine claimed to have contacted the spirit of the composer Luigi Arditi, I don't know, speaking in Italian. Price wrote down every word that was attributed to Arditi or whatever, and they were found to be word-for-word -word matches of, in an Italian phrase book. Oh. So Price formed an organization in 1925 called the National Laboratory of Psychical Research as a rival to the Society for Psychical Research. Price had a number of disputes with the SBR, most notably over the mediumship of Rudy Schneider. Price paid mediums to test them. Uh, the SPR criticized Price and disagreed about paying mediums for testing. So Harry Price was the librarian of the Magicians Club of London and a member of the Society of American Music Magicians when in 1922 his article Cold Light on Spiritualistic Phenomena was published in the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research. Houdini valued this expose of how a photographer could produce fraudulent spirit photographs that purportedly documented the operation and social interaction of figures from, beyond, um, from the beyond demonstrating that the company he could keep if the right techniques were employed. 
Houdini had himself photographed with the ghost of Abraham Lincoln. It was only a chance, it was only chance that led Price into another aspect of his career. One afternoon, while taking the train from London to his country home near Pulboro, Price met a young woman named Stella Cranshaw. The two happened to strike up a conversation about psychic anomalies, during which Stella was a hospital nurse, uh, told the investigator that she had been experiencing strange phenomena for years. She said that rapping noises, we'll cold chills, again. and household objects inexplicably uh, were taking flight and had been bothering her for some time. I mean, shit in my house started flying around, I'd be bothered too, but... <laughs> I'm like... Price, excited at the prospect of a new test subject, told her that he was a psychic investigator and asked if she would submit to being tested as a medium. Stella agreed, and a series of seances were scheduled at the London Spiritualist Alliance. Stella was given a modest payment for her time since she was required to take off work in the afternoons to come to the city. The first seance brought some surprises, namely that Stella, who had never considered herself a medium, had a spirit control who came through her to the sitters. The spirit guide, Palma, communicated by rapping and would follow and follow, well, would follow requests made to it, like moving a heavy oak table in various directions around the room. At the same seance, thermometers recorded rapid temperature drops. These swift changes would become a staple of Stella's seances. So Price brought a number of devices into the seance room in an effort to study the phenomena scientifically. One of the regular sitters built a special double table with the inner portion of it being a wire cage where items that were to be manipulated could be placed. The first time that it was used, several musical instruments were placed inside and a rattle was somehow thrown out of the ca cl uh, closed cage. And I did find a video from like back in the day of Harry Price himself talking about this table and he like demonstrated it, opened it up and showed everything that was in it, how it was all caged and like you got to see like his little library and he had like walls of books and like all these little contractions and different things to talk to the dead. It was really fucking cool. Mm -hmm. I think I have it in um, my references down here. So Price being an amateur inventor designed new equipment of his own to test the young woman's abilities. One of them was the telekinetoscope a clever device that used a telegraph key that when depressed could cause a, would cause a red light to turn on. A glass dome then covered the key so that only psychic powers could operate, operate it. During the seances, the red light occasionally turned on. During the sittings, always conducted in front of witnesses, Stella managed to produce all sorts of strange physical phenomena. During one of the seances, for example, she managed to levitate a table so high that the sitters had to rise out of their chairs to keep their hands upon it. Suddenly, three of the table legs broke away and the table itself folded and collapsed. Needless to say, this, ending, this ended the sitting. Well, yeah. that's pretty crazy. I know, right? The first series of seances ran for 11 sittings and was finally stopped by Stella, who was exhausted by the weekly trials. She often grew very tired during the seances. Her pulse would race, and then uh, the sudden drops in temperature caused her to shake uncontrollably. She saw a doctor about her exhaustion, and he recommended that she rest, obviously. <laughs> so her exhaustion and frequent absences from work caused her to lose her job at the hospital where she was employed. Price also suffered because of the seances with Stella. He had a background in conjuring and had only recently entered into phys uh, psychical fucking throws me off every time. Mm -hmm. Psychical research. His fellow magicians uh, criticized him for taking Stella's phenomena seriously. In addition, he was criticized from the other side of his research as well. The SPR was uncomfortable with Price's affiliation with the London Spiritualist Alliance, feeling that it was too closely aligned with the spiritualist community. Even though an SPR officer had attended Stella's sittings, they convinced Price that any further seances should be held at the SPR headquarters. You must come here. Yeah. You must come here. <laughs> it was with some difficulty that Price was able to convince Stella to continue the experiments. She had found a secretarial, a secretarial job with a manufacturing company and was reluctant to jeopardize her new employment. Finally, she agreed to, uh, to two more seances in late 1923. After this, she immediately ended her association with him. Their relationship, which had been warm, now turned chilly, for reasons that are not altogether clear. Hmm. 
Stella publicly uh, pleaded fatigue, but different reasons are suggested in a letter that she wrote to him in 1926. By this time, whatever had occurred was forgotten, and Stella began working with Price again after an absence of three years. In her letter, she apologized and stated that she had badly misjudged him in 1923. Um, a little like caveat off of this, but inspired by Houdini, in 1964, the magician James Randi offered $1,000 to anyone who exhibited scientifically verifiable paranormal powers. Over time, the amount was increasing, and in 1996, it was $1,000,000. After more than a so thousand... So this thing has been growing since that for that long? 1964, yeah. Dang. What I want to know is, what do they mean whenever they're like, can be scientifically measured or yeah. whatever? It can be proven that you're not like physically manipulating or conning or illusion or anything like that. I'm I'm guessing yeah. not that they can figure out how it works, just that you're not faking some kind of paranormal phenomenon. Like so, in 1996, it was one million dollars. After more than a thousand applicants in 2015, the contest the contest the contest closed without demonstration. Randy also challenged Sylvia Brown. Which, Lord Almighty. Um, So uh, so he offered Sylvia Brown, even offered her money for her to prove her powers to be real. She never did, though, although she did say that she would, but she never actually did it. She was on, like, Larry King or some shit, and she was like, oh, I'll do it. But she never fucking did it. Um, So Neither did Jesus. Just going to throw that out there. Thank you. (laughs) So if you'd like to hear more about how Sylvia Brown is a fraud, um, then check out episode 56. So, in 1926, Price came across the case of a Romanian peasant girl named Eleonora Zugin, who was apparently experiencing violent poltergeist phenomena, including flying objects, slapping, biting, and pinching, but no rapping this time. Yeah. No rapping. Thank God. Uh, Rap is dead. Okay. So, Uh, uh, the girl... (laughs) We moved on to rap rock now. (laughs) (laughs) So the girl had been rescued from an insane asylum by psychic investigators that Price had met in Vienna. Price returned to London with the girl and began a series of laboratory tests that were only partially successful. Does this not remind you of Eleven? Yeah. Stranger Things? That's what I was thinking of when I was doing it. Uh So testimony and reports from the testing claim that the stigmata appeared on the girl's body under conditions that precluded the possibility of the girl producing them by natural means. Huh. What is stigmata? Stigmata uh, is like where um, holes in the hand, like with a cross, like where, where Jesus would come across, yeah. or like um, your forehead, like bleeding from the crown, mm-hmm. so like thorns or whatever. Yeah. So it's a uh, big, biblical thing. Yeah, have religious you symbolism. Have seen the movie Stigmata? I actually own it. <laughs> wow. The stigmata appeared on the girl's body under conditions that precluded the possibility of the girl producing them by natural means. Okay. So it was also stated that she was able to move objects with her mind, although no cause could be discovered for her abilities outside of the fact that she had been severely abused as a young child. So Eleonora's abilities this ceased. Is huh? This is Carrie. This is Carrie. This is Carrie. So Eleanor's abilities ceased abruptly at the age of fourteen when she entered puberty, which uh, is something that we see quite often yeah. in um, in ghost stories. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever you have uh, children around that age, 12 to like 15 age, you see a lot of poltergeist activity because it is said that like they're, it just like feeds off of their, like the energy that they're producing, the hormones, Damn. like the, the, all Carrot. the angst, like all the spirits are feeding off of that energy yeah. that they're putting out. So in 1929, Rudy Schneider, whose abilities were said to surpass those of his brother, traveled to England to be tested by Price. The investigator was still adding new scientific technology to his array of gadgets and one device wired the hands and feet of Ruby, mm. and everyone else, I know, everyone else seated around the seance table to a display board that would, uh, whoops, to a display board. A light would signal if anyone moved enough to break the electrical circuit. Despite these controls, Rudy was said to have produced an array of effects, including ectoplasmic masses, Ooh. wrappings are back, and table levitation. <gasps> Wrap's back. Wrap is back from the dead. Lord Charles Hope, a leading SPR investigator, was astounded, as was Price himself. At the end of the sessions, Price declared that the phenomena produced by Rudy was absolutely genuine and not the slightest suspicious action was witnessed by any controller or sitter. 
1929 marked uh, the year 1929 marked a turning point in Price's career. Although the case would not be made public for several years, it was in that year that he became more involved in a case which would take over his life and for which he would become most famous for. The case involved a deteriorating Essex house called Borley Rectory. It would be during Price's investigations of the Borley Rectory that he would become the best known and most accomplished of early ghost hunters, setting the standards for those who would follow. He carefully documented both his findings and methods and established a blueprint for paranormal investigation. And we will have, I was going to include it in here, but there was way too much information. So we will have an entire episode on the Boiling Rectory next season. So make sure that you're following us and subscribe to the podcast. So many of Price's accounts from Borley would be firsthand as he claimed to see and hear much of the reported phenomena, like hearing bells ring, rapping noises, and seeing objects that has that have been moved from one place to another. In addition, he also collected accounts from scores of witnesses and previous tenants of the house, even talking to neighbors and local people who had their own experiences with the rectory. Price even leased the house for an extended one-year investigation that was supposed to run around the clock. He ran an an advertisement looking for open-minded researchers to literally camp out at the rectory and record any record, well, record any phenomena that took place in their presence. After choosing more than 40 people, he then printed the first ever handbook on how to conduct a paranormal investigation. A copy was given to each investigator and he explained what to do when investigating the house, along with what equipment they would need. In the spring of 1932, Price began testing Rudy again. In these sessions, he planned to photograph Rudy's manifestations as further evidence of his psychic abilities. Although Price obtained some favorable results, the sittings were not as successful as before for Rudy's talents seemed to have diminished. In the fall, Lord Charles Hope conducted more tests of the young man, and while he too noticed a decline of his abilities, still maintained that his powers were genuine. And then, even as Hope was preparing for his report, um, Price rocked the paranormal community with the, annou- with the announcement that Rudy was a fraud. As evidence, he produced a photograph that was taken during a seance in which Rudy showed reaching for a table. The grainy image managed to destroy Rudy's reput- reputation and embarrass the investigators who had declared him to be genuine, including Harry Price. Those who claimed that Price was simply a uh, publicity-seeking fraud were hard-pressed to explain why he would have damaged his own reputation in this way. By the time Rudy Schneider's downfall, um, the appearance of credible new mediums had all but ceased. Soon, Price Price had turned his attention from investigating mediums and psychics to investigating haunted houses and bizarre phenomena. But not all of Price's cases, or publicity-seeking antics, as some would call them, were successful. One trip took him to Germany, where he went to test a spell that would convert a mountain goat into a man. (laughs) What? (laughs) What? I'm sorry, what? A spell. So, needless to say, the spell spell failed, and Price was the subject of much ridicule. (laughs) Well, Well, I mean, he went to go investigate a goat turning into a man. Oh, it gets better. We're going to stay at the farm. You're going to hear about another animal. Here we go. So, another of Price's strangest, although possibly genuine cases, was that of Jeff, the talking mongoose. Jeff. 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 <laughs> and yes, if you are not familiar with the case, you did read that right, a talking mongoose. The case began in 1931 with a disembodied voice claiming to be that of a mongoose, a weasel-like creature. It began at an isolated place on the Isle of Man, and according to the Irving family who lived at Cashin's Gap, this create, uh, creature ate rabbits, spoke in various languages, imitated other animals, and even recited nursery rhymes. So if you would like to hear more about Jeff, then check out episode 98, where I talk about him uh, just a few weeks ago. The story is Cuckoo Bananas. What? What if it's just the worst ghost possession gone wrong? Like, they would have exercised him, but it ended up being a mongoose, and he just, dude, messed up real bad. How do you oh, exercise oh, a mongoose, guys? I, I, I was oh trying God. to practice, and I didn't know you couldn't take it back. All right. My thing is, like, what if it was, like, 
like a misinterpretation. What if it wasn't a mongoose, but what if it was something else that they just misinterpreted? A fairy. Or like a uh, like language barrier or oh. something like that. Yeah. It's a mongoose language. Like he was a he was a Mongolian, but they were like, oh, he's a mongoose. <laughs> like, <laughs> like a, a mongoose? He's a mongoose. He he's a got... mongoose in the wall, Charles. <laughs> I would be like Sally in Practical Magic, just tear the shit out of the floor, the walls, everything, <laughs> trying to find the goddamn yeah. thing. <laughs> Christ was regarded as an embarrassment, and lingering effects from this still linger today. Despite more recent work supporting his claims and methods, many British researchers still regard Price as something of an enigma. Because of his flamboyant manner and continuous self-promotion... Oh, gay. There it is. Wait. Because of his... I've uh, already read that. Okay. Uh, Price made a number of enemies with the psychical research field. Much of the resentment resolved around the fact that Price had no real scientific training, but was still so skillful at what he did. Price was a deft ma- magician and an expert at detecting fraud, though he was not taken in by many of the fraudulent mediums that plagued paranormal research of the time. His success was a slap in the face to what many considered the established psychical researchers. Regardless of what some may think of his methods and research, Harry Price must be remembered today as a pioneer in paranormal research. He is one he is he is the one person who so many modern researchers even knowingly emulate today with their investigations. Price managed to give ghost research a place in the public's eye and opened it up to those who don't fit into the categories of professional scientists, hard-headed skeptics nor fall into the realm of gullible true believers. If for no other reason that this than this, if for no other reason than this, we owe him a debt of gratitude. That is spiritualism. Yes. Oh, Jesus. I still want to know, like, because he's called the pioneer. He's like, but what did he accomplish? The, I mean, he did inspire a lot of the equipment that they use today mm-hmm. in ghost hunting you know his early because yeah. they were talking about one of the things where it could only be controlled with psychic powers they have something similar to that today um the millimeter they have the k2 meter they have um all of these different like meters mm-hmm. and some of them are electromagnetic some of them can be controlled by energy um some of them can be controlled by there's one where they put like little things on a piece of metal and it's like it lights up a light it's similar to what harry price did i mean it's very similar it's not far from what he was doing um but it's just more technologically advanced so i mean i guess if anything is that that he he was kind of the pioneer for the equipment that they use today because he was an inventor and he made a lot of the things that that they use today, but just... Mm. And I don't think we're ever really going to know the truth. If you want to follow us on social media, you can check out our link tree at the Creep Show Chronicles, or you can, if you have a story that you want to send in or recommendations, you can email us at thecreepshow18 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to The Creep Show. I'm Sam. I'm Ashley. I'm Preston. I'm Roy. I'm Pat. Stay creepy. Bye. 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 Goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Creep Show Chronicles. Follow us on social media and share our show so we can grow our audience.